welcome to the Fisher Investments Market Insights Podcast, where we discuss our firm's latest thinking on global capital markets and current events. I'm Naj Srinivas, Group Vice President of Client Communications here at the firm. And on today's episode, we're going to address energy and more specifically oil markets. There's certainly been a lot about oil markets right now. We received a lot of listener and client questions about what's happening with oil prices and the energy sector. And so given the timeliness of all these recent developments, we thought we'd dedicate an episode just to examining the energy sector and to unpack what's going on there. I talked to senior research analyst Brad Rotolo on Tuesday, April 28th. Brad is a research analyst on our capital markets team and specializes on the energy sector. During our conversation, he looked at all of the recent developments and discussed what they mean for markets and investors ahead. Please enjoy. Well, Brad, thanks for being here with us today. Nice to be here. Brad, for our listeners, why don't you give them some sense of the things that you're watching in the energy sector right now? Sure. So it's certainly been an action-packed last few weeks and months within the energy space. Always a lot of headlines, both competing for investors' attention, but also different things that actually matter for the stock market specifically. Lately, the biggest stories have really related to both supply and demand. On the demand front, there's the COVID-19 impacts to demand. You think about ultimately what is oil used for? About half of oil, give or take, is used for transportation of some form. Transportation matters a lot. So with these institutional shutdowns, oil demand has really plummeted globally. Brad, how much has demand gone down and what's happening on the supply side? Estimates range from somewhere around 20 million barrels per day to 30 million barrels per day of lost demand. That relates to about 20 to 30 percent of a demand fall off. The world previously had been using about 100 million barrels of oil per day. But with these shutdowns, demand has fallen dramatically and supply really can't adjust that quickly. The U.S. shale producers specifically do tend to be much more agile but they can't quickly turn off anywhere near the amount of supply that would be needed to sort of balance markets. On top of that, you did have pretty inconsistent policy coming from OPEC plus some other big producers, namely Russia. And for the last few years, OPEC plus had been in agreement coordinating production cuts And they were expected to deepen those cuts because of this demand weakness. Well, given this weak demand, there were wide expectations that OPEC plus was going to take even more off the table. But instead, Saudi Arabia and Russia couldn't come to an agreement. And in early March, they said, you know what, our production agreement's off. We're going to go back to just producing whatever we can produce. So it was really a pretty big change in OPEC plus policy. And that was that day in March where oil prices fell pretty dramatically. Oil prices fell north of 20% in a single day. So really what you're describing is a little bit of a double whammy of the impacts of COVID-19 and the institutional closures on the demand side. And then on the supply side, producers continuing to produce at the maximum level or as much as they wanted to. And so those two factors really impacted oil prices negatively. Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it. So you mentioned that OPEC Plus was not able to come to an agreement, but they eventually did come to an agreement. In fact, the United States agreed to doing some cuts as well. What were the terms of that agreement and what's come of that since? 
You're right. So ultimately, OPEC Plus did start coordinating again, and they're expected to begin cutting 9.7 million barrels per day beginning May 1st. And the market actually didn't react all that positively to this news. So what are the reasons behind that? Firstly, the demand fall off has far outstripped this 9.7 million barrel reduction. So if you just Think about a previously balanced market and demand dries up to the tune of, let's say, 20 million barrels of demand has evaporated. Taking about 10 million barrels of supply offline really does not bring the markets into balance. So in some ways, a lot of people have been saying this is a little too late for this to really matter in in a meaningful way. Secondly, there was a lot of talk about how the U.S. was going to be reducing output as well, but the U.S. doesn't produce oil in the coordinated sort of way that a country whose oil policies are set by the government or by a single state-owned oil company functions. So a lot of U.S. production is going to be falling, looking at how much it costs for them to produce a barrel and saying, well, gosh, at these levels of WTI or whatever it may be, it really doesn't make sense for us to be producing. A lot of the headlines saying that the U.S. is going to join in these production cuts. It's really things that were going to happen anyway. So the market generally kind of dismissed this as a non-event. It was expecting some sort of deal anyway. Another thing I would point out, there's still some indication that the primary parties of the deal, so Saudi Arabia, for instance, are still targeting market share, just in other respects. So what I mean by that is, Yes, they're going to be reducing output, but they're still selling their products for cheaper prices to Asian refiners. On the heels of all of this, one of the news stories that we encountered just a couple of weeks ago were oil futures going negative for the very first time. It was a pretty unprecedented thing. Can you talk a little bit about that and the mechanics of how that worked and why that happened? Absolutely. At a high level, when you see oil prices quoted in the media or the financial press, you may see a dollar per barrel amount that's quoted. But really what that's quoting is a futures contract. Oil comes in many different grades and qualities. And what the oil prices that are referenced in the media are referring to is really just a benchmark for crude. In the U.S., we typically are going to be citing WTI or West Texas Intermediate. Brent is the other benchmark that's used globally, but there's plenty of others as well. So when we talk about oil prices, what it's referring to is not the spot price that any given producer may be receiving when it sells its oil to a refiner, but it's the most liquid security that tracks oil that we're referencing. And that's going to be the immediately expiring futures contract. And what's going on with these futures contracts? Generally, what this futures contract would do is it would compel the owner of that futures contract to take delivery of oil at the expiration of that futures contract. And these futures contracts expire on a monthly basis. But in the current environment, capacity is so strained because of that mismatch between supply and demand. So folks that had owned these futures contracts and were due to receive oil they found themselves without really a place to put the oil. So they were saying, I'll pay somebody 
anything to get this oil off my hands. So you did see a lot of volatility in that single futures contract that was expiring. So it's not quite so fair to say oil prices universally were falling dramatically. What was the end result with that May futures contract? This futures contract, while it did price negatively for a single day, it ultimately expired positively worth a positive $10, which is far less than oil prices had been weeks before. But probably more importantly, and why energy stocks haven't been so dramatic in the last couple of weeks, is that future dated oil prices really didn't react all that negatively at all. And what I mean by that is looking a little bit further out on the futures curve, let's say one year out, looking at futures prices for West Texas Intermediate, they didn't approach anywhere near negative territory. In fact, they didn't even dip below $30 per barrel. What does all of this mean for oil prices in the future? So this is energy market participants saying, yes, there's short-term storage issues, to be sure. There's not a lot of places to put the oil right now until those uneconomic production cuts start to alleviate some of these capacity constraints. So near-term oil prices should be very weak. Longer-term oil prices, though, have been much less volatile. And how does that translate into how you're thinking about energy stocks? So if you're thinking about how to value an energy stock, one day's worth of weak oil prices really don't impact even a quarter's worth of results in a meaningful way. Really what you're describing there is to use a jargony term in the energy space, oil markets are still in contango. Correct. And for folks that aren't so in the weeds on the energy jargon, what that means is future dated oil prices are above immediate dated oil prices. If you were to look out at oil prices into the future, the line is upward sloping. And what that reflects really is potentially just weakness here in the short term. But for oil market participants looking at into the future, the capacity constraints become alleviated or perhaps it's the demand concerns become more benign. Some of those institutional closures start to ease. People start using more energy and oil for transportation. So people are starting to price in an easing of these things or maybe some of the supply constraints being eased as well. That's right. And it's, of course, impossible to say what exactly is the market expecting an improvement on the demand or on the supply side. Whatever it is that the market is thinking, ultimately, this does resolve and that the negative and incredibly low prices is probably more of an immediate issue. The market doesn't do what the futures market is predicting it does. This is simply right now oil market participants saying this looks to be a short term phenomenon. Time will tell. But that's our general sense of things as well, that this is a short-term capacity-oriented issue, not some longer-term structural demand issue. Brad, let's shift gears here a little bit. We touched on this a moment ago in terms of oil futures prices being higher than they are today, but what's the path forward here? Where could markets go from here, and how will the price of oil affect the economy? Because one of the things I've been reading in the media a lot is that, well, weak oil prices generally foretell weak economic growth or weak stock market growth. Is there really any there to those arguments? I tend to think about it less as oil driving the economy versus oil reflecting things about the economy already. It's an effect, not a cause. Certainly in parts of the U.S. that are maybe more oil and gas intensive and clearly in other countries for whom oil is a big export, 
it's not going to be rosy times. Oil prices being weak certainly seems set to reduce capital expenditures by energy firms. Even things like the number of drilling rigs expected to fall pretty dramatically over the rest of the year. So energy companies spending less money does mean that there's going to be some economies that are hit and there's no sugarcoating that. But at a macro level, While there are going to be some losers, there's probably going to be some winners as well. Some industries benefit dramatically when oil prices are weak. It's an input cost for many industries. So we tend to think of it as almost a wash. And when you look at the macro economy from a global perspective, the vast majority of global GDP is actually made up of net oil importers versus exporters. Consumers of oil and not producers of oil. Exactly. A lot has been made about the U.S. and how much oil we're producing. But really, the U.S. is clearly a net importer of oil still, as are the other sort of major economic blocks that you can think of. China, still a net importer of oil. So is Japan. So is South Korea. So is almost all of Western Europe. The majority of global GDP is oil importers. The vast majority of the stock market is oil importers. So if anything, you would say this kind of saves us on our oil bill, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be communities, that there aren't going to be regional economies that do feel the brunt of this. We saw something very similar in just 2016, right? Correct. There we did see oil prices fall pretty precipitously. That was sort of the initial round of this shift in policy from OPEC. In late 2014, OPEC said, we're not going to sit idly by and watch our market share erode. We're going to continue to produce oil. And you did clearly see capital expenditures fall briskly on the oil and gas segment. You saw unemployment in certain states in the U.S. start to rise accordingly. You did see investment dry up, but a lot of that recovered. So ultimately, we think economies and industries are dynamic enough to move past this, but it certainly is going to be a headwind for certain companies. But of course, on a macro level, thinking about 2016, heading into 2017, you still had broad economic growth. You still had stock markets doing just fine. So the weakness in the energy sector really didn't impact the rest of the broad economy and pull it down with it, as many might fear today. Correct. At this point, energy companies really only make up, call it four or so percent of global stocks. To be sure, you know, they're big, familiar companies that a lot of us know. But the path forward for energy companies does not dictate the path of the U.S. economy or the U.S. stock market or the global market. Brad, what are some of the things that you're watching in the oil and energy markets looking forward from here? To bring it back to something we had talked about a little earlier, from my perspective, it really is these institutional closures that matter most for the direction of oil prices and thus for the direction of energy stocks in a relative sense. And from my perspective, it is the duration of these closures more so than just the magnitude that's going to matter. Energy stocks and all stocks, of course, look forward. And near-term demand crunch, that's something that the stock market can get over pretty swiftly. But an indefinite period of closures with an indefinite period of overwhelmed capacity and really high excess inventories, that's something that has the potential to weigh on oil prices for a long time and thus energy stocks. 
a relative sense. Paying attention as much as we can to the pace of these institutional closures, the degree to which they're being alleviated, I do think that's going to matter significantly for the prices of oil. Another thing that's really important is just paying attention to the quality of companies because energy companies have been in a fairly bad position for a number of years now. Challenged balance sheets, really weak margins tied to softer oil prices. So there's a lot of companies out there that aren't in good shape. This is a time period where there will likely be energy failures. We've already seen a number of energy bankruptcies. There's going to be more. So just trying to understand what commonalities they have, paying attention to the the most challenged companies in the space is certainly something that we're spending a lot of time on. And lastly, of course, trying to keep up with the news flow as it relates to the supply policies. So a lot of things to keep up with, to be sure. Brad, thanks so much for your time today. Obviously, a lot of really interesting things going on in the energy sector and oil markets. And I think our listeners really appreciate your insights. Of course. Always a pleasure, Nash. That was my interview with Brad Rotolo, Senior Research Analyst covering energy here at Fisher Investments. As Brad mentioned, there's a lot of things to watch in the energy sector and more specifically in oil markets right now. We'll continue to monitor those for you. For our latest capital markets insights, check out the market minder section of our website, fisherinvestments.com. And if you like what you heard on today's podcast, please subscribe to it. You can also follow Fisher Investments on all of the major social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We're still working on our listener mailbag episode, putting together answers for many of the common investor questions that we're hearing today. That'll be our next regularly scheduled episode in June. Until then, I'm Nash Srinivas. Be well, stay safe. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2020.